I'm John Ellis. And I'm Rebecca Darst. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, it's the News Items Podcast. Every Monday through Thursday afternoon, we bring you news items from three major storylines disrupting modern life, a world in disarray, the financialization of everything, and advances in science and technology. And sometimes we talk politics. Today, we'll start with three news items. And then, after the break, we've got an interview with the host of Mad Money, the great Jim Cramer. First, we all know that El Chapo, the infamous leader of the Sinaloa cartel, is behind bars. But now, a lesser-known and seemingly more violent group called the Jalisco New Generation Cartel is trying to take over, and they may be a national security threat, both in Mexico and here at home. Then, a parliamentary election in Greenland could have big implications for the superpower contest over the most valuable resources in the world, rare earth minerals. And third, a new poll suggests that Scottish nationalist parties may win a supermajority in next month's election. The UK left Europe, and now it seems Scotland could leave the UK. After that, you'll hear my interview with CNBC's Jim Cramer, who makes the case for Fed Chair Jerome Powell as the unsung hero of the left. He's an old friend, and I think you'll really enjoy the conversation. And as usual, we'll close with important headlines from the world of science and tech. All right, let's get to it. First, from our World in Disarray storyline, Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador came to power promising a dovish approach to addressing cartel violence in the country. But homicide rates are stuck at a terrifying high. And The Guardian reports on the growing menace of the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, which now poses a challenge to Mexico's central government as the nation's, quote, most indomitable mafia firm. So, Cartels are unfortunately not a new phenomenon, but the tactics of this particular group are distinctive. John, what are the hallmarks of the Jalisco cartel, and how are they different from their predecessors? I think they're different in in their willingness to challenge, quote, authority, end quote, at every level. I mean, in the past, the Sinaloa cartel steered clear as best it could of Mexico's federal government because you didn't want a war with the federal government to get in the way of business. It's not to say they didn't have, you know, conflicts and shootouts with federal agents, but their view was that was too big a thing to take on and it was not good for business. This crew uh, has no problem with taking on authority at every level. And it is the Um, calling card, right? I mean, it is ultra-violence at high institutional levels. Correct. They're making a point, and they made a very strong point with the attempted assassination of Mexico's leading security official. So, you know, it's a different game, and they they are playing for keeps, so to speak. Okay, so John, what's this cartel's relationship to El Chapo's, the Sinaloa cartel? So up until the time of El Chapo's arrest and now his residence at the Supermax facility in Colorado, the Sinaloa cartel was sort of the uber cartel in Mexico, and everybody had to adjust to what El Chapo wanted. The other cartels, regardless of size, you know, were basically subcontractors for his cartel. Mm-hmm. With him out of the picture... There was a power grab, and the Jalisco cartel has emerged now as the strongest of all of the others, and it it caused everyone to sort of fall in line. And the other thing that's changed is 
the big money maker now is fentanyl instead of cocaine. Mm-hmm. You know, fentanyl is much easier to transport, harder to detect, mm-hmm. and the Chinese are major suppliers to the cartels of high quality fentanyl. So it's a really bad situation, and as you know, the U.S. grapples with the opioid crisis, having oceans of fentanyl come into the country is obviously problematic. Yes. <laughs> okay. We're going to Greenland for our financialization of everything storyline. The country votes in a snap election called because of disagreements over a controversial mine project. At stake, one of the world's largest deposits of rare earth minerals, which are indispensable in modern goods like iPhones, solar panels, and electric cars. It could be turned into a huge boon for Greenland's economy, but mining these rare earth metals can also be hazardous to the environment, as some locals and politicians argue. And then there are the massive geopolitical considerations. Yes, indeed. And an election, which is one of our favorite things. Yes. They've got a big decision to make. Yep. Can you walk us through why China and the U.S. care so much about it? Well, as you know, China dominates roughly 80% of the global supply of rare earth metals. These are extremely strategic. I mean, basically everything that's going to be powering the 21st century and beyond uses some form of rare earth metals. And the U.S. has been desperate to find strategic supplies located outside of China. So basically, the SNAP election has been called to determine the future of the approval process for what's called the Kfeinefjeld mine. That's the name of the mining facility that has been identified by an Australian company called Greenland Minerals, which is eager to uh, cultivate this mine, extract the minerals, and send them further on for processing. The Australian company is not without complications because its single largest shareholder is a Chinese company with ties to Beijing. Mm. So one issue is extracting the rare earth minerals from the source. But these minerals have to be processed. And China currently dominates the technology for the processing required for these rare earth minerals. So even if you decide to push ahead with, let's say, an unproblematic Australian or you know Western company in partnership with Greenlandic authorities to extract these minerals, chances are that they're going to be processed by a Chinese firm. And it's on China's Arctic Belt and Road, right? Yes. Now that you can navigate the North Pole. You know, what's incredible is that 40,000 voters in Greenland are sitting with this decision. You know, it's a very sparsely populated island, but it's not just important for the future of Greenland, which of course, you know, of course it is. I mean, they want financial independence. And now they're sitting here with like a mega lottery ticket. You know, what (laughs) what are they going to do with it? You know, what are they going to do with it? Yeah, because I mean, look, a decision made tomorrow can have far reaching consequences. Is this going to be a resource curse or a blessing for Greenland? I think we're going to find out real soon. The vote is tomorrow. It's tomorrow. I love elections from places I've never been. So Right. And we should also mention that the U.S. opened its first consulate in the Greenlandic capital of Nuuk since 1953. All right. Well, good. On we go to the next one. Yes. Now for our electoral politics basket. Scotland's parliamentary election next month could very well determine whether the country remains part of the United Kingdom. A new poll shows that Prime Minister Nicola Sturgeon's Scottish National Party could win an outright majority and other pro-independence parties could win enough seats to join her in a supermajority in favor of leaving the UK. Scotland voted against leaving in 2014. John, what's the difference this time around? Well, I think there are two differences. One is Brexit, 
which the Scottish feel does not work to their advantage, to, to put it uh, gently. And second is the LA Times did a big poll of England, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. Mm-hmm. And what they found, which is, I think, the most significant thing, was that the sense of British identity that once bound the country together is disintegrating. Nowhere, I think, is that more true than in Scotland. So the notion that the referendum will sort of automatically pass, I'm, I'm not sure that that's true. Mm-hmm. And one thing that's working in Boris Johnson's favor is that the COVID response has been remarkably successful, especially mm-hmm. uh, when compared to what's happened in the EU. Yeah. So it's not a done deal. You know, truly, because, I mean, 300 years of history between Scotland and the UK, and yet for the second time in seven years, we're having a vote on Scottish independence. Right. It seems unusual to have two such similar votes on such a monumental decision. Is that fair to say? Yeah. You know, one one of the things that happened after Brexit passed is that everybody applied for Irish citizenship so they could uh-huh. have an EU passport. Sure. And I wonder if two or three percent of the vote is just yeah. wanting a passport recognized in the EU. So let's say you have a negotiation, you have Nicola Sturgeon and Boris Johnson at the negotiating table after a referendum on Scottish independence. Is there any concession that Boris Johnson could or would grant to the Scottish side of the table that might keep them inclined to stay, let's say? I don't know. I mean, I, I think his initial position will be what you're doing is illegal. Yeah. But, you know, there'd be special exemptions, you know, the kind of things that you would do to facilitate a compromise, I'm sure, after the absolutely no way yeah. there's not, we're not going to give an inch position is done with. My guess is that Johnson's view is that the longer this goes on, the steam will sort of run out. I think he's just, you know, delay and delay and delay and delay, drag it out as much as possible, and hoping that that will be this sort of, will it will take care of itself and the issue will go away, which I don't think is right, by the way. But. Okay, enough about Scotland. John, I heard you talk to Jim Cramer last week. I did indeed. Listeners can find the full interview in their podcast feed. We released it on Friday. But right now, we're going to hear some of the highlights, including his thoughts on a key geopolitical issue, Taiwan's security. I'm excited to hear that. So we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with that. Welcome to the podcast. We have as our guest today the one and only, the truly great Jim Cramer, the host of CNBC's Mad Money, which I believe is entering its 17th year or 16th year. We're 16, probably one of the longest, you know, we're getting up there in terms of longest running shows, more than 3,500 shows. Certainly at this point, I think you could regard me as a fixture. I don't know if being a fixture is good or not, but I think I am one. Yeah, there's no question that you're a fixture. (laughs) And also, the reason that everybody watches CNBC from 9 to 10 a.m., of course, is Jim Cramer, pre-open and then at, you know, as the open and afterwards. But can we talk about fighting the Fed, one of my favorite subjects? Sure. Do we fight the Fed or does the Fed fight the markets? If you go back to the absolute worst moment of the pandemic, the yeah. absolute worst moment. March. Where you got the highest 
unemployment number in a given week in the history of them keeping numbers. I'm talking about like worse than the depression. What happened that morning, an hour before that number came out? Jay Powell went on the Today Show and was interviewed by Savannah Guthrie. And he basically said, look, you know, here's one thing that's not going to happen. I'm not going to let this country go down the train. And she said, doesn't the Fed, her question, run out of ammunition? And he looked at her. And of course, it was Zoom. You know, it was one of those things where she wasn't, he wasn't on the set. And he said, the Fed never runs out of ammunition. And that was it. That was the low. You had to buy every share, hand over fist, because the Fed never runs out of ammunition. Never fight the Fed. And by the way, this guy, Jay Powell, he may go down as one of the greatest Fed chiefs ever. And I do not say that about a lot of the Fed chiefs. He is very good. And he's got a heart, too. I mean, I don't know if anyone's even noticed. One of the things, he's totally changed the policy of the Fed. He is about getting people jobs. You're supposed to fight inflation. You're supposed to be a skinflint. No, he he's about equality. I mean, the guy is incredible. And I wish that the left in this country would give this man more credit because he's standing up to the dogma of the Fed by saying, you know what? We're not going to raise rates until many, many more people get a job because the country's so unequal. I mean, what? where is the left celebrating this guy? Yeah. He's crazy. He's the best. We have as one of our mantras of this podcast, we're with Jay we're because with Jay. he is the guy who said, I don't give a shit about inflation. I want people back to work, which Do people not know how special that is. Yeah, no, it's spectacular. Oh, my God. I mean, this breaks with all the orthodoxy. And yet he get what? Because he like wears a blue tie, white shirt. I mean, he what's he have to do for people to understand that this guy is just decided that it's time to smash the idols. And care more about the working person because the working person doesn't make enough money or can't get a job. And, you know, he says it and people say, oh, yeah, I guess it's eh, a typical Republican. Typical Republican. <laughs> I mean, how about a hard left? <laughs> I love the guy. I mean, I love him. Are we at modern monetary theory? MMT? Um, love to get your thoughts on that. You mean just. We just spend and spend until inflation comes and then we're, you know, we'll yeah. deal with it later. Right. Well, because, you know, we have. Actually, we're going to have inflation this year because of a couple of things like this. We never talked. I mean, if this happened in New York is all we would talk about. This Superstorm Uri basically has taken out all of the plastic that's made in this country. So right. plastic has gone up dramatically. The Canadians have a hammer hold on all our lumber. Right. They just did it. I mean, in reaction to what Trump did. So lumber's doubled. The semiconductor shortage is not a real shortage. It's the Chinese double and triple ordering and taking all of our chips because we were doing just in time and they were doing just in case. None of those three forces of inflation would be cured by higher rates. Right. I mean, Jay has to get in and grow a lot of trees. OK, he's got to put up a lot of semiconductor factories and it's not going to happen. He can't create a plastic factory. So, I mean, Jay's going to have real inflation. But to Jay's credit, he said, look, there's going to be a short term spike up inflation and I'm going to ignore it. Right. And I'm going to focus on the prize, which is waiting for real inflation to perk its head up. Not that kind of inflation that involves a storm. By the way, can we just say that Biden is much tougher on the Chinese than Trump? We can. I mean, it's Isn't been it's uh, amazing? spectacular, <laughs> really impressive. I'm very impressed by Blinken, I must say. I am in shock that he is talking about a full fledged assault. If you read his infrastructure, the plan, he first talked about the need for climate. Right. Now they're still they're still trying to weed out the uh 
card-carrying not believers in climate change, but he believes in climate change. And the second, he believes in stopping the desire for the Chinese to have supremacy in this world. And it's really, here's another thing people aren't picking up, John, but you and I could because we're old enough to know. He's talking about the interstate highway system. And, you know, he forgets the reason he says it would be the greatest since we have the interstate highway system. The interstate highway system was invented by Eisenhower because we needed roads that were big enough to handle missiles on trucks. (laughs) So, I mean, that was about the Cold War. And this state, this whole jobs program is a mixture of climate change and being competitive against what seems to be the ultimate Cold War foe, which is China. And I think people are missing that. That was the big undercurrent of yesterday. I want to give a a plug for you and your product for a second. The thing that I asked Gina Raimondo last night, Commerce Secretary, is to talk about what's really going on with China. Again, the Cold War. Other than your writing about, to me, the most, maybe the most important geopolitical story right now, which is, will China try to take Taiwan, where all the intellectual property of America is located because we outsourced it because the Taiwanese are so much cheaper. This is what the issue is going to be. And General Mattis said it could happen. Obama said it would, you know, he tried to make a deal with with the Chinese and they completely lied about it. And so the question is, are we going to wake up one morning and they're going to take Taiwan? I mean, is, is it going to be like Cuba? Yes. And you get that. But, John, why does no one else see that? that, I mean, you had, what, four items today about it? Why does no one see that that's what the threat is? Truthfully, I don't understand. I think, I mean, to the degree that I've had success with news items, it's because other people don't see what's, you know, right in front of them, right? It's right there. Niall Ferguson had a really good column a couple of weeks ago in which he said, you know, when Kissinger was negotiating with the Chinese, there were all things that Kissinger wanted to do, you know, 18 different issues that they kind of wanted to skate around and deal with. And the Chinese had one issue, which was Taiwan. <laughs> and we want it back. Yeah, we want it so, back. And now we're here. They wanted to be like, remember when Nixon went to that museum? Yes. And he asked, check everybody's yeah. pockets when he walked yeah. out. They don't they want to be the guy who says that now. Yeah. You know, check exactly. everybody's pockets. I worry all the time about the Chinese and not the people whom I think are actually very simpatico with America, if not the most simpatico in the globe. Yeah. But the government, which has decided to get very tough and has decided lamentably that they can beat us. And I think there's a lot of things they can because they solved the pandemic far earlier than than we have. Yeah. And it, I, I worry about Taiwan. Because, again, one of the reasons why there's a chip shortage, remember, all these these Taiwan semiconductors, everybody applauds, they have to be very careful because they have part Chinese ownership and the Chinese are huge clients. So do not forget that when you hear chip shortage, that's the Chinese creating a chip shortage, which is hurting all of our manufacturers. And you got that. And no one else is getting it, John. And I hope you get the word out and people who read you recognize what's really going on is that these guys are the Soviet, the new Soviets. Yeah, yeah. Remember, the Soviets, in many ways, you know, people don't like to think about this. One World War II, they had 28 million people die. They were very committed. Of course, we're almost back to, I guess, where they were in 1938 uh, in terms of the number of people they had in the country. But the Chinese, they understand the mistakes of what the Russians did. And they're not going to make them. And studied it very closely. They're just not going to make them. Taiwan is the place that is the flashpoint in the globe right now. And we should be more worried about it. You know, I, I go to Italy a lot. And when you go to Milan, well, not now because of the pandemic, everywhere you see one thing, you see the Belt and Road Initiatives of China. Right. In Milan. 
Milan is the most important manufacturing city in Italy. And the thing that you think of is it's almost as like Beijing must be its sister city. Again, people don't understand what's happening around the globe. The Chinese are using their might to be able to be exactly like the Soviets, picking off countries one by one. And it's very discouraging because our country, I mean, I I think Trump understood it. Navarro understood it, but didn't really know what to do. Um, And I I think Biden is really, you know, kind of coming to grips with it. But it's a military discussion, not just a political discussion. I think the biggest mistake of the Trump administration was withdrawing from TPP, which was at least a framework that, you know, going forward, you could have leveraged into a military alliance as well. Yes. All right, buddy. You know, I read you faithfully every morning because you know that I what I email you what about how many seconds after it comes out? Well, sometimes at three in the morning, I think. (laughs) (laughs) We won't get into the texting. (laughs) John, I want to thank you. I wish you the best of luck. And you know what I start my morning with. Thank you so much for coming on. Always. Great to see you. Good to see you. John, that was great. I don't think I've ever heard Jim Cramer speak so unguardedly and so candidly. He was great. It was like being in the room or having dinner with Jim when he's on his game. And he was definitely on his game for this interview. So we were thrilled to have him. And I think those that listen to him will see why. Yeah. Well, all all the listeners came to dinner with Jim Cramer, so to speak. Yes, indeed. That's a treat. And now for our science and tech headlines. First, the personal information of half a billion Facebook users was shared online this past Saturday. That includes phone numbers, birth dates, and locations. A Facebook spokesperson told Insider the information is a few years old and had been leaked because of a vulnerability that the company fixed in 2019. But that's not making this exposure of information any less massive or less useful for hackers and scammers. John, another leak. Another leak indeed. It's almost enough to make one begin to feel sorry mm-hmm. for Facebook, as impossible as that may sound. Yeah. There's nothing but bad news that's coming out from the company and about the company. And it's likely, if you're a Facebook user, as am I, that we're part of that leak. So. Well, you know, I got to say, in terms of the reaction to the leak, I mean, talk about normalization of deviance. You know, well, you know, this is a few years old. It's your right. name, your birth right. date, your address. But they addressed the leak back in 2019. So don't worry about it. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Okay, so we're going to move on to our second headline here. Scientists at CERN have successfully cooled the temperature of antimatter to near absolute zero for the first time. Physicists at the world's largest particle physics laboratory used lasers to create a metaphorical headwind, which slowed the antimatter down and has, in theory, made it easier to study in the future. Antimatter was discovered back in 1932 and has mirrored physical properties, think negative charge versus positive, compared to its regular matter counterparts. It's heady stuff, but the point is that this stuff exists and we're getting closer to understanding it. For more on what matters, whether it's matter or antimatter, check out news items on Substack. You can Google news items, Substack. That's it. (laughs) Just Google Substack news items and it pops right up. Yep. And you got to subscribe to get the good stuff. Yes, indeed. Yes. You also have to subscribe or at least visit Investable Universe, which is Rebecca's site. And I'm hoping that today there'll be stuff on rare earth minerals. Rare earth metals. We'll have to see what the implications of that Greenland vote are going to be. That's that's an exciting story. 
In the meantime, News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with more of the news from our three major storylines, the financialization of everything, a world in disarray, and advances in science and technology. See you then. <laughs>